I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you have a copy of the Scripture, please turn there. The words should be on the screen, and they're definitely in the bulletin. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter to you as we continue our study in the Gospel of John and continue to think about life with Jesus this year. What I'm about to read to you is the Word of God. This is a portion of a letter from home. Listen to this. On the third day... Excuse me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. The Lord in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have of knowing what you want us to know as you've given it to us in your word. That we can know you, we can know your thoughts, we can know your plan, we can know everything that you have done for us. We can know why we were created, why we're here, and what is to come. Would you help us, Lord, to want more and more of your words to define who we are rather than our own words and our own story and our own life. Help us to get into your word and your story and be found again and again in Jesus. We pray in your name, Jesus. We pray in confidence because we pray you. Amen. You probably have noticed by now that reading the Gospel of John and the accounts that we've looked at over the last few weeks are a little bit different than when we were reading the book of Ephesians together. Do you remember that? We read through the book of Ephesians and the letter to the church at Ephesus. What you find there in reading Ephesians is an awful lot of like uh, 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 sentence structure and um, it's just a really different way of thinking in a sense. You read the epistles and you have to think about what's the sentence structure and what's going on here, where's the subject and verb, and what's all, how does this all fit? But when you read a gospel account like we're reading, when you read the gospel of John or the other accounts, it's reading a narrative. And reading a narrative isn't exactly the same thing as reading an epistle. So when we read a narrative account, we have to think more about hmm, well, what is this collectively saying? We have to look for different kinds of clues, and we have to think about how in the world can I get into this story? 
Because you see, the Bible itself is one big story. So every time we read a narrative account, we are expecting or we should expect to connect the parts of the story together. That's why last week when we looked at John 1 and we read the account of Jesus gathering his disciples, remember this with Philip and Nathaniel, that Jesus knew what was going on with Nathaniel because he was thinking about something going on earlier in the story, way back in Genesis. We can expect to see those types of things happening because the Bible itself fits together into this one big story. And that means when we're reading an account like John, a narrative, a story, it means that we have to try really, really hard, and maybe we even ought to expect to try to get into the story. So in understanding the story, we can get into it, and then we can understand what's going on. So today is going to be similar to the last few weeks. Let's try to make sure we're all on the same page and understand the story, and hopefully we can find ourselves in that story. So John 2 starts off, and we find ourselves in this little village about eight miles away from Nazareth in this little town called Cana. And we derive from reading this story that it must have been a day that was just electric with excitement. It was a wedding day. In other words, all the plans and all the uh, uh, all working out all the logistics of everything with the ceremony was all passed, and we find ourselves in the ceremony. The day must have been really exciting for the family that was there and bringing two people together in the bond of marriage. We learn a little bit in the first two verses about who was there. We learn that Mary was there, the mother of Jesus. We learn that Jesus was there. We learn that his disciples were there. So you had Philip and you had Nathaniel, you had Andrew, you had Simon, and of course you had John. And they were all there in this little village for this wedding day. And in thinking about that, know this. In the ancient world, weddings were a little bit different than our weddings, okay? Uh, This hopefully will add some dimension to the story. In the ancient world, after the ceremony, there was a party that took place that lasted anywhere from three to seven days. Maybe some of you have been to a wedding ceremony in which there was a reception after the ceremony and it lasted maybe till 10 o'clock, maybe till midnight, maybe till two in the morning. Maybe you've been out that late. But in the ancient world, you actually would party for multiple days. As a matter of fact, the groom was on the hook He had to pay for all of that. As a matter of fact, I read one particular scholar that even mentioned this. In the ancient world, um, if the party didn't go well, the groom's family was shamed. And there are even accounts in the ancient world that the groom's family was liable to lawsuit. So could you imagine the pressure that 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 you have if you were the one who was providing for this party? So here you are, you're responsible to throw this magnanimous party. And if those that attended didn't like it, they might sue your family. That's quite a lot of pressure. 
So here you have Jesus with his disciples attending this ceremony, and we find them celebrating in this party. And if you didn't notice it when we read, you realize that a problem arises. You look around, verse 3. Something happened in the wedding that didn't go well. Now, just as an aside, if you are planning a wedding or thinking about getting married, or if you want to think about getting married one day, let me just alleviate this maybe unrealistic expectation for you. Something will go wrong at your wedding. It's been that way for a long time. If you, if you talk to people who are married in here, I guarantee you they will tell you something didn't go right at their wedding. Whether it was someone got sick or didn't start on time or whatever it was, something will go wrong. In my wedding, we got married at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, December 9th of 2000. And at 1.25, the wedding planner came to me and said, Dave, do you have the marriage license? I didn't have it. So I had to drive all the way across town to Jenny's parents' house and get the marriage license and bring it all the way back to the church. And I arrived just in time to walk my grandmother down the aisle. So I just barely made it. But let me tell you, I was a nervous wreck. Jenny didn't even know that that went on until afterwards. Something will go wrong in your ceremony. It's not going to be perfect, and it's okay. In this particular ceremony, what happened was this. When the party started, they ran out of wine. They ran out of alcohol. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, what are we going to do about this? We, we don't have any more wine. We ran out. And that leads to a conversation between Jesus and his mom. She says, Jesus, we don't have any wine. And Jesus looks at her in verse 4 and he says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? Did you notice that? You might have heard that and thought to yourself, wow, that sounds a little bit rude. That sounds disrespectful for Jesus to respond to his own mother that way. Let me tell you, he wasn't being disrespectful at all. This particular word that's used here is what we might use in certain senses and certain contexts as the idea of lady. It's used to get someone's attention. I remember when telemarketers started calling cell phones. Do you remember this? Those of you that had cell phones for a while. And being on campus and serving on campus, I would get random calls from people I didn't know all the time. So I answered. And I remember that it was a telemarketer who just kept going and going and going about what she wanted me to do. And instead of just hanging up on her, I finally had to say to her, lady, I'm not interested. And then I hung up. When Jesus says this to his mom, when he says woman to her, he is not being disrespectful to her at all. We'll get to a little bit later as to why and how we know that more particularly. But for now, he was, he was communicating something to her. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down and speaks to his mother and encourages John to take care of her, he uses this exact same word. It is not meant in a derogatory fashion at all. Jesus was reminding his own mother, he was reminding all of us that yes, Jesus came from Mary. Yes, she was his mama. But she also had to remember and she also had to learn, just like we do, that whenever she approached him, she had to approach him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
She had to approach him as if he was sent by God, the Heavenly Father, to come to earth and fulfill a mission. He was here sent by God in order to save his people. And she had to remember that, and she wasn't ever to forget that. So yeah, she caught him off guard, and he says this to her, reminding her who he is. As a matter of fact, we also know that she didn't take offense at this because if you look at verse 5, we might be offended by what Jesus said, but she wasn't. Look at what she says. She tells whoever's around, do whatever he tells you. She didn't say, that rascal, can't believe he said that to me, I'm his mother. No. He spoke to her and she said, whatever he says to do, you do it. So Jesus then summons men together and says, all right, I want you to fill up all of these pitchers of water. I want you to fill them up. And then he asked a sample to be taken to the master of the feast. And they did. And you know what happened. He tastes the water. Only now it's been changed to wine. So here you have the master of the feast then going to the groom and his family and saying, look, what typically happens is that you drink all of the worst tasting wine last. But you, you saved the best wine for now. This is the best that we have had this entire party. This is the best stuff ever. So of course, as you might guess, the groom was off the hook, right? His family wasn't in jeopardy. His family didn't have to worry about any lawsuits being filed. They threw a tremendous party where they spared no expense and even had the best tasting wine at the very end. Oh, by the way, this was a lot of wine. Somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Think about that. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot. That's a lot to enjoy. That's a lot for a lot of people to enjoy. Well, what's the point of all this? That's the story. What's the point of all this? I mean, is the point of this passage that uh, this particular groom was on the verge of being a social outcast and on the verge of being shamed and Jesus steps in and he fixes that problem. Is that, you think that's the point of this passage? That in those moments in which we are about to experience social shame, Jesus can step in and smooth everything out and make us look like we are the best family? You think that's what the purpose is? I hope you would instinctively say no. That's not what this is about. Do you think this passage is just simply showing us and communicating to us that Jesus is God and that he can do miraculous things? And so we ought to be in awe of him because he is God and he can do things that we can never do? Do you think that's just what this is about? It's not about that either. And I hope that you have certainly been taught from this passage before, if you've heard this passage before, that Jesus is God. I hope you've heard that. And I hope you've heard that Jesus does miraculous things that only God can do. That is absolutely true. But that is not the main point of this story. It's not the main point at all. So what in the world is the point? 
What is the point of this whole passage? Because it's actually telling us a whole lot more. Well, how can we figure that out? When you read this account, John, in writing this account, gives us clues so that we don't read this passage and only think Jesus is God and can do miraculous things. He gives us clues in these verses to help us understand that this story is pointing us to something so much more than just the fact that Jesus is God and that he's a real man. Here's clue number one. Look at verse 11. What does it say? This was the what of his signs. The first of his signs. You see, John actually has seven signs that he lays out for us in the first 11-ish, 12 chapters of John. He wanted to identify this sign first as Jesus' first sign. He wants us to hear this story and think, oh, what Jesus did here is a sign. In other words, it's more than a miracle. It's a sign. It's pointing us to something else than just miraculous activity. There's some deeper reality going on here. There's something more than just miraculous. Matter of fact, when you think about a sign, a sign is a picture that points us without words to something else. So when Jesus changes the water to wine, he's actually communicating something else to us, something deeper, something more profound. That's clue number one. Here's clue number two. Verse six tells us about these pitchers, that they're ceremonial pitchers, the ones that are filled with 120 to 180, ultimately, gallons of wine. You see, these pitchers were used for ceremonial cleansing. There were other times in Jesus' life when he would meet with his disciples and the Pharisees would come and they say, why, why didn't you wash your hands like, like you're supposed to do? with these ceremonial pots here, pitchers. You see, Jesus is telling us something. There's something going on here. There's something sacred going on at a wedding. There's something beyond just the natural of two people getting together. There's something supernatural going on. There's something deeply spiritual that's happening. Here's another clue. Look in verse four. When Jesus says to his mother, Woman, on and on, my hour has not yet come. That idea of hour is a clue. It's what John uses throughout his gospel to point us to Jesus' death and his resurrection. So when you read in John chapter 7 when he's at a feast and people come to arrest him, they don't take him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, you read a similar thing. In chapter 12, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the men come to take him because his hour had come. In John chapter 13, when he washes the disciples' feet, he says that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end because he knew his hour had come. In John 17, when he prays, he prays because his hour had come. You see, it wasn't time for him to suffer and die yet. This whole story is telling you this moment 
in which Jesus was there and they ran out of wine and his mom comes to him and asks him what is going to happen, that moment is telling you what was going on in Jesus' mind. When his mother came to him and asked him, it startled him. He was thinking about something. I'll say it like this. What do you think about when you go to a wedding? Your wedding. Do you know what I think about when I go to a wedding? Surprise, my wedding. Even if I'm officiating, I'm thinking about my wedding. Jesus was at this wedding in Cana, and his mother comes to him, and she says, there's a problem, Jesus, and he's startled and says, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. He says that because he is thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about his bride. That's why he would say, my time has not yet come. My party is not yet. My wedding ceremony isn't to happen yet. You see, one of the images that God uses in the Bible to picture salvation and to picture the gospel message is marriage between Jesus and his people. And when Jesus came to earth, Jesus came to pursue his bride. He came to win his bride. He came to pledge himself to you and to me in all of his glory and in all of his obedience and in all of his perfection, even willing to pledge himself to die for you and for me, for us, his bride. There is nothing, look at verse 11, There is nothing that shows glory and manifests the glory of God like Jesus being wedded to his people. Do you notice that John says this is the first of his signs by which he manifested his glory? There is nothing that shows the glory of Jesus like him giving himself for his bride. There is nothing that shows glory like a perfect being forgiving a people who were so far from perfection. There is nothing like showing glory in granting people an identity when we think we can find a better identity somewhere else. There is no display of glory like someone who's willing to give us the destiny of a heaven and earth reunited to a people that would prefer an eternity of self-absorption, which is hell. How do we see that glory? How in the world can we see that glory of Jesus? Look at verse 11 and what the disciples did. They believed. They believed. They received Jesus again and again and again. If you want to see the glory of this passage, and if you want to see the glory of Jesus and him thinking about his own wedding on this day when he was there, believe in him. Entrust yourself to him again. Be defined by Jesus every moment of every day in every situation of your life, every day when you go to work, if you go to work every day, your work isn't your savior, Jesus is. 
And he's going to use your work to show you how much you need him to save you. Every day. If you have a, if you have a family, Jesus is the savior of your home. You're not the savior of your home. You're not the savior of your children. Every day, your family or your marriage is showing you how much you need Jesus to be the savior of your marriage or the savior of your home. Every day. Every day if you're single, you're being taught that Jesus is your best companion ever. The best one you will ever have every day. Jesus is the savior of your struggles and your challenges. So whatever challenges you're in and struggles you're in, the only way out, the only way through it, the only hope you have, the only way to learn from them, the only way to cry out and grieve and be frustrated is Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that you can cry and be frustrated. It's in Jesus that you can find hope in those challenges. It's through Jesus that you're able to endure them. It's because of Jesus that you can learn something through your challenges. He's the only Savior for all of our challenges and struggles. It reminds us that Jesus is the Savior of our wayward children. When they grow up and wander off, what hope do you have? You're going to be introspective and look and, and, and criti criticize yourself for everything you didn't do? Or is Jesus the Savior of your children? Is Jesus the Savior of your wayward children? And the only hope that your wayward children really had anyway was Jesus. It was never you and me. Jesus is the Savior of our aging parents. You know, when you hit that spot in your life in which you realize you have to start parenting your parents, maybe some of you are there. Well, actually, I know some of you are there. I get little glimpses of that in my life. Had that for a number of years. You know how much pressure you can feel because of that? How much frustration can be there? How much love is drawn out of you toward them? Well, the only savior of my aging parents is not me. It's Jesus. Only he can minister to them in ways that I cannot. Jesus is the savior of everything. He's the savior of our plans, our dreams, our money, our schedule. And what this passage is showing every one of us who will hear it, every one of us who will believe and receive it, is this is how committed he is to his bride. This is how committed he is to you and me. That he can be at a wedding in the first century in this little village. And he's already thinking about his bride. And how joyful it's going to be to celebrate with them forever and ever. Because there will come a day where we will feast. And we will feast and feast and feast. And we will want no more. We will be with him and his people forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for loving us and being our rock and our redeemer. We admit before you that there are so many ways in our lives in which we try to be our own savior, and that is just flat-out sin. And you are using everything every day to convince us that you are our only savior. So may we not only marvel at the reality that you are God and do miraculous things, but may we be in awe that at this little village, you were thinking about your wedding and that you would die 
for us. May that fill us with a sense of hope and expectation of what is to come. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.